God, we commit our time into your hands this morning, this evening, Lord, and just asking, Lord, that you would break hearts, that we would be mindful of whose presence we're in. Lord, you're, you're sitting right next to us. You're with us. Your word has a work to do at this very moment. Surgery is going to be conducted if we allow you to. You're going to cut away what needs to be cut away. You're going to mend what needs to be mended. You're going to strengthen what needs to be strengthened. You're going to purify what needs to be purified. Lord, we know that your word does not come back void. But Lord, your word always accomplishes that which you set out for it to accomplish. I pray, Lord, that we would take care on how we hear. So it's with that that we commit this time into your care and help us to be attentive. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So 2 Samuel chapter 14, um, you know, we know that Absalom had avenged his sister Tamar by killing Amnon. You know, he, he runs away, Absalom does, he runs away to Jeshur as a fugitive for, and he stays there for a few years. And we know during this time that, uh, as we're going to read through this chapter, that the very first verse tells us that, that David longed for his son. He yearned for his son. He missed him greatly. And yet he never acts appropriately to what, not only what he did, but to seek reconciliation during the course of those three years. We don't have any record of King David reaching out to his son and making any attempt to being reconciled with him. A man in sin not confronted and allowed to stew in bitterness and anger will only prove to strengthen his perspective and deepen those sinful thoughts in action, implying he is justified in what is plainly sin before God. So not addressing the sin implies to that person that they are justified in what they refuse to do or do that is clearly opposed to the Lord. We'll see that played out in the next couple chapters, but tonight we're going to see Absalom's return to Jerusalem, but it uh, takes a little, uh, a little acting, it takes a, a little coercion, you could say, on, on behalf of Joab through this wise woman. So let's start out. 2 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 1 says, Now Joab the son of Zariah knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Well, this is the introduction to what uh, now is, is the, the, the first work to try and get Absalom, or trying to get David to send out for Absalom to come back to Jerusalem. Now, Joab, we know, was King David's loyal servant. Uh, he led and oversaw the army of Israel. 
Now, we did have an example of Joab's loyalty back in chapter 12 when, remember, he was, he was assured of victory over Rabbah, and he called for David, and he said, hey, it's, it's time to come, and I'm summarizing, I'm paraphrasing. He, he called out for King David to come and to finish the job, to have the victory over these people so that he could take the credit and not Joab. And so this is Joab's loyalty to the king. And we know it was Joab's job to pay attention to the king, to know him well, pass along the king's orders to the army, ensure that they were followed, and serve as one of his key advisors. He had to be a trusted servant, a companion. We begin in verse 1 with a description of Joab's keen observation of the king's relational condition as it pertained to his son, Absalom. Joab knew. He discerned that David longed for Absalom as we see it described in verse 1. But all the while, the king could not bring himself to doing anything about his absence. How he was exiled. He was a, he was a fugitive. He never in those three years reached out to him. At this point, David had neglected, number one, to respond appropriately to Amnon's sin. And because of that, Absalom took vengeance because of the violation of his sister Tamar and killed Amnon. And it's because of that that Absalom is now living as a fugitive in Gershom. And it's been three years since he had killed Absalom and been away from his father, David. So three years. Now, I just want to share my thoughts. And, and I want to make sure that you understand these are, these are my thoughts. Because I'm thinking that Joab perceived that King David was being hindered in some ways from leading Israel. And this is just my insight, just thinking about why it was. Because there's no reason for Joab to act. There's no reason for Joab to do anything. But there was some reason that, that Joab... Was, was prodded. There was a reason why Joab was inclined to reach out to King David and persuade him to send for Absalom, his son, and reconcile. And so I'm thinking that perhaps Joab saw some things within the kingdom, perhaps some things that were being hindered because King David was preoccupied, he was distracted, his mind wasn't just all there with everything that had to do with the kingdom. And so Joab acted in a way that he thought would facilitate the reconciliation of father and son. And therefore allow King David to better focus on the issues of the kingdom of Israel. We're going to learn a little bit later that there was much more though. Because Absalom, you see, was the crown prince. The, the second to the throne, he's not mentioned the only one that's mentioned is Absalom. So it very could well have been that Absalom was the one that was next to the throne. So perhaps Job was, uh, Joab was, uh, was thinking, well, you know, he could at any point make a run for the throne. And so he wanted to prevent that from happening. Well, Joab sent for a woman from Tekoa. This is, uh, Tekoa is, 
is about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. So you have Jerusalem, you have Bethlehem, and then you have Tekoa right below that, which is just west of the Dead Sea, if you're looking at a map of Israel. She's described as a wise woman, and Joab asked this woman to do something for him, pretending that she's faced with a situation that you could say parallels the kings, but is not exactly the same as the kings. Maybe that was a way of masking the whole situation, and we're going to see where that leads without just fully disclosing that this was exactly, you know, the king's situation. So she's to pretend to be mourning over a grieving issue that is tearing her apart. Uh, she is to look like she is overwhelmed with the issue and has sought the help of the king to judge the issue and perhaps apply some mercy. Joab gave her a script, told her exactly what to say, and she followed it very well. And she also acted it out very well. Joab trusted this woman would follow through with the task he gave her to accomplish. It was all for the sake of the king and the overall benefit of the kingdom. That's what his main concern was. Verse 4 says, When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. And so the widow said to the king. The woman came to the king and just asked that he would hear her case. Perhaps pass judgment, hoping for mercy and leniency given the circumstances. Her husband was dead. She had two sons. They were out in the field. There was no one to break them apart. They got into a fight, and one killed the other. It's implied that the son that was left ran to a city of refuge. And she says very clearly that she's being pressured to hand him over to be put to death because of his guilt that he was guilty of murder. The killing was not accidental, but rather carried out due to anger. And so it was murder. It wasn't self-defense. We know that the cities of refuge were meant to protect someone who had killed another from the avenger of the deceased person until a fair trial could be heard by a judge. But in this case, it's implied that the son was absolutely guilty. And at this point, the mother is refusing to hand him over. He doesn't want his, his son to, to die at the hands of the people, even knowing that he was guilty. She's pleading for mercy. 
And she gave the reason. She wasn't trying to say that her son was not guilty of murder. She said very plainly, she testified, she, she was admitting that he was guilty. This is exactly how this happened. But the whole reason why she was asking for mercy is because it would be too much for her to lose her husband, her son, and then also, not only that, but just consider the fact that the, the family line would be lost. It would end right then and there. What was the king to do? Because he has the responsibility to uphold justice. What is the king to do? Exodus chapter 23 and verse 2 says, You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Romans chapter 2 verse 11 says, For God shows no partiality. And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 25, it says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there, again, is no partiality. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. We may have an emotional inclination but we ultimately need to yield to the authority of God's word and trust that it is the best and right way to handle and judge a situation. Um, when I come into a situation for counseling, at times I'm compelled to refer to the time when Joshua was faced with um, the commander of the Lord's army. You know, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And it was at that point that Joshua asked whether he was with them or against them. And, uh, and the answer was, I'm with the Lord Almighty. The whole point of that is that, you know, in, in a time of counseling, you know, especially in a dispute between, between two people, you know, I, I will tell them, I'm not for you and I'm not for you. I'm for the Lord. And so what I lay before you is I'm going to point you to Scripture and whatever it is that Scripture judges in this matter, it is final. That is it. For us, we may have these emotional inclinations to look over certain things, look beyond them. But that would be applying partiality. Something that the Lord is not. It's not who He is. He's, he's absent of that in His character. He's impartial. He's fair across the board. And so we must all, always, when we come to that place to where we realize that that which we feel like we need to do is not based on truth, is not based on the Word of God, but it's based on our own feelings. This is not what we want to do. Then we need to yield to, to the truth of God's Word. We need to yield to the Lord. And so she laid everything before the king as far as the situation concerned, is concerned, this woman waits for the response of the king. And the question is, how will he decide the matter? Well, verse 8, as we continue, says, Then the king said to the woman, 
Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Well, initially David was um, reluctant to judge the matter. Initially, David was delaying judgment and considering the matter before passing judgment and concluding. He didn't want to do that. He didn't say yes. He didn't say no. He said, go home, and we'll see. At this point, we can see that David was already being impacted by the appearance of the woman and her plea for mercy. I ask you this question. Weren't the facts already laid out? They were. They were already laid out. Did the woman not share all the details? Did the woman not admit that her son had killed her other son out of anger? And did she not admit that there was no justification for killing him? When David wanted to send her away to take some time to think about the case, she realized at that moment that David was already weakened. She pressured him to, take, to, to make a decision right away. She played on his emotions. She was hoping on sympathy. She was just hoping that that would work. Oh man, alligator tears and an appearance of brokenness. I mean, just watch a movie and some of us are like, man, we're so taken by it, right? It's like just the appearance and the words that are used and just the, the emotion behind it. It's like you find yourself just welling up, right? David was, was that. David was already balking. He was hesitating. He was neglecting to act when all the facts were before him hesitating to make a just decision, and she knew that he was already considering a complete pardon. Just in her heart, that's, that's what she saw. She read it all over David. It's, we're almost there. We're almost there. First, he ensured her that if anyone would give her a hard time and laid a hand on her, that he would take action against them. But then she went all in and pleaded with David to swear before God that her son would be set free and no one would be allowed to touch him. She pressed King David and he folded. He folded. He sacrificed applicable justice on the altar of compromise because he, quote unquote, felt like it would be too much for her to lose another son and the last of the men who would continue the family name. 
he felt the way that she described herself. He went right along with it, disregarded everything that she had told him as far as the facts of the, the case were concerned. But at the same time, we, we look at God. We consider what he does with us. How it is that if we were to stand before him and we were to lay out our lives, how guilty we would be. We are completely guilty and we are worthy of condemnation eternally. There is no way that we could do anything in and of ourselves to save us from being guilty and being condemned to eternally pay for our sins. And yet we know it is because of Jesus that we are justified by faith in Christ. We are redeemed by his blood. He is not an unjust God. He's a just God. And it was one who is unblemished who came to die for our sins on the cross. But we know that kind of forgiveness. We know that kind of grace. In Christ, we know that. We have been forgiven, pardoned. And then even more than pardoned, we are, being, have, we are given everything as joint heirs with Christ of all of God's riches. Well, that, this is an imperfect picture, but, but we know that God has is, is, is made a way for us to be with him, to be reconciled unto him through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But what we have here is something that this widow wanted to hear from King David. He said what she wanted to hear exactly the way she wanted to hear it. Verse 12 then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord, the king, will set me at rest, for my lord, the king, is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord, your God, be with you. Well, at this point, everything's out in the open. The woman confronts David with his situation with Absalom. She makes it clear. This is why I'm here, and this is why I'm saying this, and you... Like Nathan did with David, you're, you're the man. This is your situation. As we'll see in the next chapter in a couple weeks, because next week, by the way, we won't be, we'll be here, but we'll be uh, in the middle of our week of prayer and fasting. But in the following week, we'll, we'll see the negligence of David had only served to make Absalom bitter and the threat to the throne and kingdom of Israel not be more real, and it was increasing as time went on. 
At this point, Joab, through this woman, was telling David, you must take responsibility to initiate reconciliation or be faced with the potential of more serious problems. Well, the more serious problems are coming anyway. And at this point, David was, we know he was, he was quick to, as we saw in, uh, in verse 11, he was quick to pardon the woman's son who was guilty of murder. Right? So he was quick to judge that. But not quick to pardon his son and restore his place among the people. The woman expressed a sense of urgency for David not to delay any longer. This is what she said here where she said, We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Which means, hey, listen, that which is gone is gone. And so we can't gather it back up again. Once the water is spilled on the ground, soaks into the earth, it's gone. That, that's it. And so is life. Right now you have an opportunity to do something. Do it. And so the woman expressed his sense of urgency for David to not delay any longer and to find a way to bring back Absalom and no longer, for him, no longer to be regarded as an outcast. You know, again, we consider how it is that God made a way of bringing us back to him and no longer, us no longer being outcasts who are subject to punishment and being exiles apart from God forever. Again, by praying for our, paying for our transgressions in full himself, he stood in the place of each guilty sinner and shed his blood on our behalf, reconciling us to himself. That's why sometimes, you know, the times that we do come together and worship, you know, see how your worship changes when you consider that. When you're singing his praises and thanking him for his grace and for eternal life. Oh, how, how are your worship changes. You know, sometimes we have to, if we know the words, you know, we ought to close our eyes and just, just imagine his glory before us. That he is right before us. There's no one else. No one seated in front of you. It doesn't matter who's around you. But to consider the fact that Jesus came and he paid for your sins, past, present, and future. And through him, you have the hope of forever being in the glory of God. He reconciled us to himself. Well, without question, Absalom was guilty of murder. But what should be considered here and what should be taken into account? Because we're looking again into the account. This whole situation was, it goes back to David not taking care of business. Amnon is dead. Absalom is a fugitive. Joab is trying to get Absalom to come back because time has gone by, three years, and the heart of Absalom is growing bitter and hard. So what should be considered here and taken into account? The question is, should Absalom be pardoned? If so, why? If not, why? Verse 18 says, Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything, I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? You already suspected Joab it was behind it all. Uh, can I also point something else out? N notice the way 
that the king and this woman are interacting, how they're speaking to each other. And then think about how people speak to each other today. This is, this is a respectful exchange between a subject and the king. And the king likewise is responding to this woman in a very respectful way as she is addressing him. That'd be good to apply in social media especially. Verse 19, the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord, the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord, the king, has said. In other words, yes, right? It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. And so she was very respectful toward King David. She was saying, you judge matters, and the Lord has given you wisdom to judge all these matters. At this point, David discerned that Joab had put this woman up to this and asked if it was Joab that sent her. And she confirmed. She said, absolutely, as the king said, I cannot deny it. It is as you have discerned. King David. This woman was honorable. She was respectful and told David it was, that it was all to change. It was all for a purpose, though. She said, the whole reason why Joab had sent me to do this and put these words in my mouth was to change the course of events that he discerned were coming. He saw it all lined up, and he wanted to change what he saw was inevitable. It was coming. It was for the sake of the king and the kingdom that Joab did this thing. What Joab saw, he saw rebellion. It was building up. And I, I can't help but think that perhaps Joab had some insight. You know, he, he knew maybe some people that were, that, that uh, Absalom was, was around. Um, maybe he had some intel on exactly what, what was going on with, with Absalom. So, you know, he saw it building up. He somehow, Joab discerned it and was doing everything he could to avoid it. Verse 21, Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on, fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Jeshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. So we see how it was that David agreed uh, for Joab to send for Absalom and bring him back to Jerusalem. And so he gave the order. Joab, go bring him, bring him to Jerusalem. So we see how Joab was, it was just elated. He was happy. He was happy about the response of the king. He honored the king. And thanked him for considering and following through with what his request was of the king. 
which he thought it was the best thing to do. But it's interesting that as he sent Joab to go retrieve Absalom and bring him back, remember, it's been three years. Just go get him, bring him back to Jerusalem. But he is to live apart from me. And I am not to see his face. Bring him home, but he is to live separate from me. Don't want to look at him. David, again, and I, I have to keep reminding us of the fact that he failed to discipline Amnon. And that was the crown prince. He failed to address Absalom. And now he brings him back. We know that Joab, in his heart, he wanted him to reconcile with his son. He wanted things to be restored. And yet, even in bringing him back, he, he was close physically now, but in heart, he was far from him. It still rejected him. And he refuses to face him. To me, it just it doesn't make sense. David partially reaches out and partially restores Absalom, but in so doing, in, in that partiality, partially doing these things, he completely remains rejected. Is, aren't these mixed signals? Okay, bring him home. Yeah, I don't want to see him. Yeah, but he's home. Yeah, but I know, but yeah, he, he's forgiven. Or he's fine. He didn't say he was forgiven, but go ahead and bring him home, right? It's fine. A child that is forgiven cannot then be treated like he's still punished. Even if he's at a closer distance. Okay, fine. Get out of your room. Come into the living room. But I'm still, I'm still mad at you. If the child feels like he's alienated at a closer distance, it only serves to harden his heart more toward the parent. At some point, if that's all that's being shown to the child, it's actually something that provokes the child to anger. Because it's mixed signals. I don't understand. You, you've taken me out of the place where there was discipline, and yet you're still communicating to me that there's still a separation, that, that there's still something there. And so there's some mixed signals. There's confusion because there's a false sense of forgiveness without any evidence of it. Be careful how you act towards someone after you say you forgive them. You confuse people. If clearly there remains an attitude of payback for what's been verbally forgiven, it will not appear as genuine and resentment can build in the heart of the person who is told they were forgiven. Oh, I forgive you. But I won't forget what you did. It's like saying, I have the right to treat you like trash because you deserve it. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Remember that there's a purpose for the discipline that you apply, the things that we do, but always 
always show that there's restoration, reconciliation after you've addressed the issue. It's, in, it's relationships, friendships. Once, once we get to a place to where, you know, true restoration, true reconciliation is the setting. It's the healing. And you can't do that by acting as if it's still broken even though you're near, you're closer. You, quote unquote, accept them. You tolerate them. That's, that's not the way it works. Can you imagine if God acted like that with us? Oh, yeah, I forgive you. And I, from here on out, I'll tolerate you, but I will treat you like you're not even in the room. How many of us do that? You know, it's like, oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're cool, right? We're cool. We're good. And then you, you go into the room with that person, and you feel like it's just frozen. It's like, man, that person... You might as well have come in and not come in. <laughs> we got to be careful because what that provokes is resentment and bitterness. It, it just builds a hardened heart in that person. We got to be careful. We got to have that heart of God to where once we forgive, it's a done deal. And we need to express that. We need to show that by how we respond to them when they come into the room, when they come into our presence, let's not be like David, right, in this case. Let us be open and receive them as we did before, if not better, because we've gone through something difficult and we've known reconciliation. Well, Absalom was brought into the palace, but he lived in a separate area from the king. And of course, they didn't see each other. And this went on, so he had been away at Gershom for three years, and now he would live separate from the king for two years. Imagine that. Well, let's look at uh, how handsome Absalom is, because that's what we have next. Verse 25, now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. Uh, this is just a setup for what's to come in, not in the next chapter, but the chapter after that. Um, it says, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. Uh, there were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So we have the description of Absalom. This dude was handsome, right? Can you imagine being described in this way? Oh, from, from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Oh, what a man, right? It's like, oh, good night, right? <laughs> this was a, oh, and when he cut, his, he cut his hair once a year, what this is describing is that at the end of the year, he had such a beautiful mane. And it grew so much that they literally, he literally had five and a half pounds of hair every single year. Man. <laughs> I'm losing it. <laughs> Come on, Absalom, give me a, a little bit of that. You know, the real estate is just growing and growing, right? 
That's what happens to some of us. But this was a handsome man. This is, uh, you know, Absalom continued with his life is what we see here in this, these uh, few verses. Uh, he continued with, the, with his life. His family grew, having three sons and one daughter. In fact, he named his daughter Tamar after his sister Tamar. And so he had this, this sympathy, he had this compassion uh, toward his sister. And so um, we, we, we see him name his daughter Tamar. And she, like her aunt, is described here as being very beautiful, a very beautiful girl. So David's family was growing, but for him, still no face-to-face with his son, Absalom. Again, just keep that in mind as we go into, in a couple weeks, we're going to continue to go through this whole situation. All right, so verse 28. So, So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Jeshur? Uh, It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, And the king kissed Absalom. After three years in Jeshur, and now two years back in the palace or back in Jerusalem, Absalom still hadn't seen his father. And so at this point, he asked, he sent for Joab to to come to him. First time, he rejected him. The second time, he rejected him. And so Absalom, he, he figured something out. I'll destroy his barley field, and surely Joab will come. What a, what a way of thinking, right? It's like, I, I, I'm going to completely destroy something that Joab values, and I know I'll get a response from him. But that's, what, that's how he thought. That, that was it right there. Absalom was sympathetic enough to name his daughter after his sister, but violent enough to set a man's field on fire to get his attention. There's one word for that, and that's savage. That's that's what it was for him. It was just wild, right? Absalom believed that his killing of Amnon, you know, as as he exchanged, as he had that dialogue with, with Joab, he really truly believed that his killing of Amnon was justified by what he said to Joab. He said, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. So at this point, he's, he's putting the challenge out there. See, basically, Joab, you didn't bring me back to be put to death, to be judged, and to be sentenced to death. You didn't, you didn't bring me back for that. There was three years that passed. The king did not come for me. Two years I've been here in Jerusalem, 
Still nothing. So at this point, it's put up or shut up, right? It, it's at this point, something needs to give because I'm still being treated like an outcast. And, I, and for Absalom, he, said, he was saying, I'm done. I'm done. I, you should have left me back at Jeshur. You should have left me back there. And yet, here I am. So for him, he thought, I'm, I'm guiltless. Let me go into the presence of the king. And so, of course, if he believed that he was justified and innocent, then David was not justified in treating him the way he was. Right? So in Absalom's mind, because I'm innocent, the king does not have any right treating me the way he has treated me. Because I'm completely justified in what I did. Well, you know, he burned his field and Joab came. They had this discussion. It all worked. Joab agreed, told the king, and brought Absalom to David. So this is the moment of truth right here. Absalom finally, after five years, is brought before the king. What's the king going to do? Is David at this point going to confront Absalom? Or is he going to look the other way? So he came to the king and he bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Absalom honored the king, and the king kissed Absalom. The king, you see, at this point, pardoned Absalom without confronting the sin. The king forgave Absalom without any sign of repentance. Therefore, the king was partial, and the king was unjust in his judgment. And he served to further spoil a child's heart. When one overlooks sin, never addresses it and ignores it, the person who is guilty of the sin believes they were justified in committing the sin. That's why it's very important. You know, again, going back to, you know, I, I said, what, what, what is some, sometimes... As we've known parents to look the other way, to kind of ignore or justify um, the sin of their children, that only serves to spoil the heart of the child. When they aren't confronted, when they aren't told, you are in the wrong, and you need to admit, you need to repent, you need to confess, you need to repent of your sin. You need to deal with the consequences of your sin. Because you either... You're going to reap. And, and again, you know, I'll, I'll say, I've said this to my boys, and for them, that sometimes they need to learn the hard way. You're going to reap what you sow. You, you sow righteousness, oh, you're going to reap blessings. You, you sow sin, well, you're going to reap the consequences of that. Discipline. You, you're going to reap the things that come from that. It's up to us, right? But you do no service to your child or to anyone else when you simply just sweep their sin under the carpet. It just, it doesn't work. 
Because when one overlooks sin, never addresses it and ignores it, the person who's guilty of the sin believes they were justified in committing the sin, thinks they're okay, and it only serves to strengthen them in their sin. And they continue on that path. It's a path of destruction. This is what we see with David and Absalom. Absalom, at this point, he's talking about being affirmed in what he believed. He had challenged Joab. Oh, let the king, let the king, it says here, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. Oh, he didn't put him to death. He didn't confront him. He didn't challenge him. He didn't put sin before him. What did he do? Absalom came and bowed before him, and the king came up and just simply kissed him. That's all he did. It served to strengthen him in his sin. Alan Redpath said this, quote, May God write it on your soul. If the pardon you want is that God should wink at your sin, he will not do it. Close quote. He won't do it. Someone else might. But God won't wink at your sin. God confronts the sin. So we ought to confront the sin. Do what is right and fear God, not man. Father, much to think about, much to consider as we've gone through this chapter. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the things that we've covered this evening. Lord, let us be courageous and yet gentle and loving. In the things that we have before us, situations, Lord, there are times when we need to confront sin. I pray, Lord, that the other party would, would be receptive, that they would understand, and if they truly are in sin, Lord, that they would be humble enough to confess their sin and repent of it. If it's our own children, Lord, I pray that we would not neglect our responsibility of parenting them correctly, of raising them in a way that they should go. And Lord, helping guide them along the path of truth. Lord, if it's with others, I pray that as you give us opportunity, and even when it doesn't seem like there's opportunity, let us insist on doing the right thing. In confronting the issue that we may know reconciliation, restoration, may we not be that person who comes along someone else and simply affirms them in their sin. I pray, Lord, that we would be that friend that truly loves enough to, at times, wound. Lord, because we know profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I pray, Father, for us as a church that we would consider your word and stand on it. That anything that we are inclined to do, if it's out of emotion, and yet as opposed to the word of God. Lord, that we would reject our inclination. And Lord, we would yield to the authority of your word and walk in it. And so, Father, I just thank you, Lord, for this time. I thank you what we have before us. We ask for your grace, for your mercy. I ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to fill us that we would walk in the spirit, that we would not fulfill the lust of the flesh, 
And Lord, I do pray that we would be humble before you and we would be a people truly that follow you and honor you all the days of our lives. We thank you, Father, and we pray this all in Jesus' name.